Welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and we are delighted to be with you again this week as we discuss 2 Samuel chapters 5 through 7 and 11 through 12, and 1 Kings chapters 3, 8, and 11 in a lesson entitled, Thy Kingdom Shall Be Established Forever. Maureen, I'm just so amazed as we are going through the Old Testament how applicable these lessons are to today. It just seems like every week they are right on the money for the things that we are experiencing, the things that we're going through, the things that we need to learn. I've just been amazed. You think that a book that's thousands of years old would not have that kind of application, but I just had to say that at the outset because I am just blown away every week by these amazing lessons. Well, and these are chapters that are enough to break your heart. I have always loved David, and I thrill to the things he writes about the Lord and his love for the Lord. So to see the events of his life unfold have truly always been, and they feel personal to me. I feel a personal loss when we're thinking about David. So let's talk a little bit about his background. David is anointed king when he's 30 years old in Hebron, and he reigns for 40 years with the elders of Israel. This is widely considered Israel's golden time because he is able to do what no one else has been able to do before, and that is unite all the people of Israel under one leadership. And then he makes Jerusalem to be what he calls the stronghold of Zion, the capital of Israel. And it's a little bit like Washington, D.C. is. It wasn't in any state. It was a neutral place, and that's how Jerusalem was. It was partway between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, so it was everybody's capital. But Jerusalem didn't come easily to David. It certainly didn't. He and his warriors had to come in, and the Jebusites still have that upper part of Mount Moriah, and they're a Canaanite people, and so because Jerusalem is is surrounded by these deep valleys, it really was much more prominent in those days than when we go there today. Those valleys like the Kidron uh, are so deep that it's a very formidable stronghold, and so they have to come in to take that final part of the mountain through the water system. So they go through a a tunnel or a a shaft, and they come in and take the city by surprise through this water system. In fact, that was a real surprise to to the Jebusites because they had boasted that even the lame and blind could withstand invaders. And so David comes in through the water system and then takes over Jerusalem. And Jerusalem originally was pretty small, only 12 acres and two or 3,000 inhabitants, but it was the center point of this golden age of Israel. I was really impressed as I started reading the first part of this lesson that in those early days of David's reign, he is seeking and receiving personal revelation from the Lord over and over again. And if we just look at uh, two or three or four examples, Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 19, And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thine hand. So he is always inquiring of the Lord and receiving answers about just exactly how he should lead the people and especially the army of the people so that they can continue to conquer the land. 
And in 1 Samuel 23, verse 2, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines. And then again in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 8, And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So again and again we see this pattern. And what I said at the beginning about how applicable these are to today, we have a prophet who is telling us to seek for personal revelation, to learn how to hear the Lord. And David was in this pattern where he was hearing the Lord. I was especially impressed as I was reading this material and studying this about Elder Richard G. Scott's talk on how to obtain revelation and inspiration for your personal life. Back clear from April 2012, he says, the Holy Ghost communicates important information that we need to guide us in our mortal journey. When it is crisp and clear and essential, it warrants the title of revelation. When it is a series of promptings, we often have to guide us step by step to a worthy objective for the purpose of this message, it is inspiration. So he continues, one of the great lessons that each of us needs to learn is to ask. Why does the Lord want us to pray to him and to ask? Because that is how revelation is received. And then he says, when I am faced with a very difficult matter, this is how I try to understand what to do. I fast. I pray to find and understand scriptures that will be helpful. That process is cyclical. I start reading a passage of scripture. I ponder what the verse means and pray for inspiration. I then ponder and pray to know if I have captured all the Lord wants me to do. Often more impressions come with increased understanding of doctrine. I have found that pattern to be a good way to learn from the scriptures. And then he says, in conclusion, the scriptures depict how an individual's capacity to conquer difficulty, doubt, and seemingly insurmountable challenges is strengthened by the Lord in time of need. As you ponder such examples, including, I might say here, about David receiving revelation in these critical times, you will come to know that similar help is available to you. And so I think had Maureen King David only continued in that perfect path of seeking the Lord's revelation in every aspect of his life, things would have been so much different. Well, and his challenge immediately were the Philistines because they had always tried to have a wedge between the southern and the northern kingdoms. And as long as they could keep them separated, the Philistines had some chance to be strong. But when they saw them united under David, then the Philistines really organized to stop them. And so thus, David is constantly asking the Lord where to turn and what to do. And one of the instances that shows us how really strong the Philistines had been is that they actually stole the Ark of the Covenant. Now let's hark back for a minute and think about that Ark of the Covenant and what it is. As we know, it was in the tabernacle as it moved through the wilderness. It was in the, the Holy of Holies. And it would eventually be in Solomon's temple in the Holy of Holies. It was a, a, a box that was a wooden chest about four feet by two and a half by two and a half feet. And there was gold that completely covered the Ark 
and it was the top of it was called the mercy seat with two cherubs positioned upon it facing each other. And within the ark were placed the second tables of stone, which included the Ten Commandments that Moses had put there. So the ark was considered, of course, a very sacred thing. In fact, they took it with them when they crossed into Jordan and the Jordan River opened before them and they crossed on dry ground. They took it with them before the battle at Jericho when they marched around the city for seven days. So this is a really sacred and important thing to them. But Scott, I think what is most interesting is what that ark symbolized. Well, the ark was a symbol of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And when we see the power of this ark, because it really was this overarching power that kept the people safe and it was in the Holy of Holies in the temple and really nobody could go in and see it except for the high priest and that not very often and so this symbol of the atonement of Jesus Christ and that mercy seat and when God came to visit his people when he did visit his prophet or his high priest he would come to that mercy seat and stand above there and talk to the person who is receiving that revelation and interestingly enough, that mercy seat with those two cherubs, the cherubs were a male and a female in that perfect representation of the, the marriage that God had ordained. And it was only over, like unto an altar, the altar of sacrifice. And all of this is the symbol of the atonement of Jesus Christ. So you can imagine how they must have felt when the Philistines actually took the ark to their capital city, Ashdod. In fact, we understand that the high priest Eli fell over dead when he heard that the ark had been stolen. So they put the ark in a temple to their idol god, and immediately the idol god fell over the next day, and then when they set it back upright, it fell over the second day. And then a a sickness, a, a terrible pestilence came over the Philistines who were living near the Ark of the Covenant. Some people have even described it as being similar to the plague that came over them and killed many of them. I think they, cons they consider it that way because it was marked by the people getting boils and hemorrhoids and, and a disease that sounded a lot like the plague in its description. But at any rate, the Philistines only had the Ark seven months and they said, we don't want this anymore. And so um, it came back to Israel, but for the next 20 years, it was in Israel, but it was in um, a place called Bet Shemesh and Kiryat Yirim, um, and ignored by King Saul when he was the ruler. So basically, it's like they, the people almost lost touch with this sacred, this sacred center that had been so important to them. It was just not even on their radar for, for quite a while. And I think this is an interesting thing because you wonder if we have some things that are sacred in our lives that begin to become less sacred to us because of our own sloppiness or blindness. And this is simply what seemed to have happened to the ark. And I, I think it is worth paying attention to the fact that if something is sacred, we need to maintain its sacredness and understand its sacredness and treat it as sacred. Oh, I agree. And I think in personal application, there are things that we do, even family traditions that are sacred to us. And I don't mean just to the proctors, I mean to all of us out there listening. There are traditions that we need to keep up, things that 
bind our families together. And when they become treated lightly or the kids say, I don't want to participate in this anymore or whatever, then that is a sacred thing that gets set aside and isn't done anymore. And I think that we lose something. Now, David, he realized and thought it was time to bring the Ark of the Covenant home. And so he gathered 30,000 chosen men of Israel and they set the Ark of God on a new cart that was made for it. And then David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of firwood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And so this is a celebration. The, the once lost Ark was found and it was being brought home. It reminds me of the celebration we all felt when the Nauvoo Temple was rebuilt. You know, this had been a loss to us as a people. And I remember the absolute joy on the day of dedication of the Nauvoo Temple because that which was lost was now back with us again. So keeping the sacred sacred and having access to the sacred is really important to a covenant people. Now, there is a famous moment in this story because as they came to a threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. So in other words, this as it's on this cart, the oxen as they're coming into the threshing floor kind of shake the cart and it looks to Uzzah like this ark is going to fall. And so he stretches forth his hand to steady the ark. And then in verse 7 it says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. Now, this term of studying the ark has come down to us this day, and we read it in the Doctrine and Covenants as well. Yes, in section 85, verse 8, While that man who was called of God and appointed, that putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of God, shall fall by the shaft of death like as a tree that is smitten by the vivid shaft of lightning. So that was carried down for thousands of years. So the Lord had specified that the ark was always to be carried by the poles and only by duly authorized persons. The chosen representatives of all Israel were assembled as an escort and Uzzah and his brother were given the responsibility for the cart, but en route to the city you know, one of the oxen is stumbling, so he thinks to put forth his hand and study the ark, but that's not what God said to do. And the ark represented God's direction of Israel and his presence among them, which they had chosen to ignore. So what does it mean to study the ark? Uh, it's interesting, David O. McKay said this, Let us look around us and see how quickly men who attempt unauthoritatively to study the ark die spiritually. Their souls become embittered, their minds distorted, their judgments faulty, and their spirits depressed. Such is the pitiable condition of men who, neglecting their own responsibilities, spend their time in finding fault with others. So I think the idea of someone who wants to study the ark is someone who has a better idea of the way the Lord should lead the church, better idea about what the prophets should tell us. They always have a better idea and so they merely criticize and resist counsel, or if they take it all the way to publicly question and harangue the prophets, they say, aren't they just a bunch of old men who are out of touch with our times? I won't believe or trust the prophet or the Lord until all is changed to fit my own agenda. 
I can't trust them if they don't meet my political or social views. This is studying the ark. It is hoping the Lord will take your advice on his children, his commandments, or his universe. And really, when you think about it, it's absurd to think in any way that we are somehow called to steady the ark or correct the Lord or his prophets. And yet, we see it in every age, and we certainly see it today. And now we have the advantage or disadvantage of the internet where people can make their criticisms and their better ideas for what the prophet should do very public. And this is studying the ark. And President McKay says that's the kind of thing that eventually leads us to spiritual death because we become, our faith becomes corroded. We become disconnected from him. I remember, Maureen, years ago when someone who was very close to us began to criticize the prophet. And this is someone who had been faithful her whole life. And all of a sudden I heard this criticism and it shocked me. I remember it shocking my soul because at first I thought, did she really just say that? And then I thought, where is she going with this? And it really did damage that person to the point that it led her out of the church. That beginning, just a few little criticisms that were fairly small, but that just led down a road that could not be recovered from for a long, long, long time. Dwayne Boyce and Kimberly White have just written a book that's soon to be published called The Last Safe Place. And in that book, they say, the Lord has been very clear that the spiritual path of safety and progress is marked by the words of his chosen leaders. And I notice, safety and progress. He has said that whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. And that surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And that we should receive the Lord's words to his prophets as if from mine own mouth. So the issue is this, how do I feel about the Lord's prophets? Do I or do I not take the prophets as seriously as the Lord himself takes them? Dwayne and Kimberly continue, this is a key question because it is perfectly possible to approach church membership in a way that doesn't take prophets very seriously. We might be grateful for the restoration, for what we know about eternal families and so forth, and yet feel that the presiding brethren don't really receive revelation very often and wish that they had made some important decisions very differently. We might see prophets as figureheads or as political office holders. In that case, it wouldn't seem important to take them particularly seriously, especially when they say or do things that don't match our view of the gospel. This is no time to take the issue lightly, they continue. Our view of prophets matters. We live in a day when, perhaps more than any other time in this dispensation, gross darkness covers the minds of the people. The devil rages in the hearts of men, and the very elect are in danger of being deceived. We are living in times so confusing and tumultuous that they have been foretold for millennia, our danger is real. They say in times of such confusion and difficulty, we really cannot afford to take prophets less seriously than the Lord takes them. Facing this fork in the road, we must not choose incorrectly. 
The Lord warned us about taking lightly the direction he provides through his servants who hold the keys of the kingdom. Of the divine direction that comes from these servants, he said, And all they who receive the oracles of God, let them beware how they hold them, lest they are counted as a light thing. He said that those who do this with prophetic direction will stumble and fall when the storms descend and the winds blow and the rains descend and beat upon their house. So I think when we're talking about steadying the ark, it really is a pretty big challenge. We are not asked to give counsel to the Lord on how he should do things. And we also don't need to counsel the prophet on what he should tell us, even though we think our ideas are so very, very good. I think someday when we have a broader view, we will laugh at how small our viewpoint really was here on earth. We will think we were living blindly in a corner and thinking we knew everything and trying to advise the Lord. So one of the great mysteries of ancient times is what happened to the ark. The ark was finally placed in Solomon's temple, but the last mention of it is in the days of King Josiah. Then the scripture is silent. Josephus tells us that the temple that Herod built, where Jesus visited in his lifetime, no longer had the Ark of the Covenant. A big difference between Solomon's temple, the temple number one, and number two temple on that temple mount, which we sometimes call Herod's temple. The one had the Ark of the Covenant, and the second one during Jesus' time did not have the Ark. National Geographic calls the Ark of the Covenant one of history's enduring mysteries. And of course, we all know that because we're familiar with the movie Indiana Jones. And the <laughs> Yes, it's just in a warehouse somewhere. That's right. Somewhere. Those, those creators of that movie were very clever to, um, to show something of what they thought the power of the Ark of the Covenant might be and to show how it was just completely overlooked and left in a warehouse somewhere. But um, it is true that we simply don't know where it is. And we have a couple of candidates well, one of the most famous claims about the Ark's whereabouts is that before the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, it had found its way to Ethiopia, where it still resides in the town of Aksum in the St. Mary of Zion Cathedral. Church authorities, however, say only one man, the guardian of the Ark, is allowed to see it, and they have never permitted it to be studied for authenticity. Well, another claim is that the Ark is hidden someplace in the warren of passages beneath the first temple in Jerusalem before the Babylonians destroyed it in 586 BC. And of course, that theory can't be tested either because the Dome of the Rock is right on top of that. And there's no way that those, those warrens or shafts under that area will ever be explored. So digging beneath it simply isn't an option. So we went to an interesting place in Jerusalem called the Third Temple Institute where they believe they're preparing all of the things that need to go inside of the third temple. And they have a model of the Ark of the Covenant, but they say that they can't have the third temple until they have the actual Ark of the Covenant, and they would like to know where it is, but until then they have a model. So we can see that that mystery has remained through time. And what we know is that we have the Atonement of Jesus Christ active in our lives today and priesthood power. So we are personally not as concerned about what happened to the Ark of the Covenant and where it is today. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David sat in his house and he wondered, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the Ark of God dwelleth within curtains. So what he's saying is, 
I don't think it's right that I dwell in a really nice place and the Ark of the Covenant is just dwelling behind curtains. I want to build a house unto God. And so Nathan says, go and do all that's in thine heart. But the Lord instructs Nathan differently. Um, he is not allowed to build a temple. And that's an interesting thing. Yes, in fact, in First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3, it said, Thou shalt not build an house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war, and hast shed blood. The Lord reminds David, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great man like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. But he gave him all these things, but he did not give him the privilege of building the temple. Well, and it shows, too, that the Lord is in charge of whenever a temple is to be built. Sometimes, even in our day, we think, oh, we know exactly where there should be a temple, or we think that this is right, or this is the place it should be, or something. I do remember, interestingly enough, we were close to the head of the temple department for many years, Elder Bill Walker. and. He said one time they were in a meeting and President Monson, who was the prophet at the time, just opened the door and he said, we need to build a temple in Payson, Utah. And he just closed the door and left. And so there they were. The prophet had just said, we need to build a temple in Payson. And it's no small task, all the logistics that go into building a temple, but they did. And look at the beautiful temple that's now in Payson. And I was just from the word of the prophet. Well, and isn't it so interesting when we see all these temples that are beginning to be dotting the earth and that are announced every conference, this is because the Lord is giving direction to the prophet that we need all these temples and that these temples are vital for us at this time. So it really does show how involved God is in the process of building temples. Now, we love David and so far things seem to have gone well. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 11, our hearts are really broken. And this was at a time of year when kings go forth to battle. And David should have been there, but David tarried at Jerusalem. And you wonder why. Why didn't he go to battle that year with every, everyone else as he should have? Yeah, he you and I have been... from his duty? I don't know. You and I have been pondering that this week. You know, did he have an injury? Was he depressed? Was he just tired of going to battle? Was he shirking his duty? Uh, did he have other business he thought was more important? What was the reason that kept him back? Because it would change the entire course of history. Because as he was walking on the roof of his house a particular evening, he saw a woman washing herself, a woman very beautiful to look upon. And at this point, don't you just want to shout through the centuries to David, don't do it, David, turn your head, leave the scene. You have no idea how this is going to undo you. In fact, you know, you say, why are you tearing here anyway? But can't you just forego this temptation? You know, the Lord, he's directed you. This is not for you. But David sent and inquired after the woman. Oh my goodness, those are sad words. I remember, Maureen, years ago, we had a gathering of some of our friends and we were talking and one of the questions that came up was, if you could go back in time and just talk to anyone in the history of the earth and not counting Jesus or Joseph Smith, 
um, because everyone would say, oh, I'd love to talk to Jesus. Uh, who would you talk to? And I knew exactly at that moment who I would talk to. And when it came around the circle to me, I said, I would go back to David the night that he was looking out over and seeing Bathsheba. I would say, David, let me talk to you. I would tell him I'm a time traveler. I would do anything I could to thwart him from this direction. But as Maureen just said, he sent and inquired after the woman and she is Bathsheba, wife of Uriah. But David sent messengers and took her and obviously they slept together and she conceived. It's hard to tell here if Bathsheba was even a willing party. We don't know. Yes, because the king sends messengers and takes her. What is she to do? I don't, I don't know where she stands and all this. But as I think about David, it's such a self-betrayal. It's not only a betrayal of God, but it's a, it's a betrayal of his deepest yearnings, his deepest self. And I think it's interesting because in our lives, we experience ourselves with lots of different pieces and parts. That's why we argue with ourselves. There is a part of us that is clear about what we want and what we hope for. And then there's another part of us that wants to do something easier, that wants to respond to the needs of the moment. Um, and I think we do have pieces and parts of ourselves. And in this case, he betrays the Lord and he betrays himself because David indicates in everything that he writes and says that how much he loves the Lord. In fact, the Lord himself said he had a heart like unto mine. So this is a sad, sad moment. And David then does worse because Bathsheba became pregnant. He's now going to try to cover the consequences of his sin. So he brings Uriah back from the war. Now, David should have been there at that war and maybe even fighting side by side with Uriah. But he brings Uriah back from the war under a pretense and then invited him to go to his own house. Go and spend time with your wife. Be with her. And of course, he figured, David figured that Uriah would just go in and of course he'd been gone from his wife for a while, he would lay with her and this could cover his tracks. But Uriah, this amazing man, being a loyal soldier on duty, would not indulge himself to even go into his own house, but he slept at the door of the king. What a contrast, because here we see David completely indulging himself, and on the other hand we see Uriah doing a duty that he sees as higher than himself and not even going down to see his wife because he's a soldier on duty and will just sleep on day at David's door. And you think, oh, David, why can't you be as true as this? So when Uriah returns to the field, David writes this note of betrayal in verse 15. Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. Oh my goodness. So he has just made his situation so much worse. And when Bathsheba heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned, of course, for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so this child died, and David was fasting, he was praying, he was doing everything he could to try to save the life of this child, and the child's life was not saved. 
Yes, he has lost he has lost his place with the Lord. And it's interesting how the Lord delivers this message to him because it's the prophet Nathan that makes it clear to David what he has done by telling him a story. He said there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. So this one poor man loved this ewe. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd, to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb, and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger, now if you don't understand what dressed it means, that means they slaughtered it and made it for a, a great meal. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. How searing that must have been to David's conscience. And it's fascinating that David didn't see the parallel the whole time Nathan was telling him. But Nathan rose up in defense of this poor man who had lost his ewe to the rich man. And so we see here that David was blind in some ways to the evil that he had done until it was pointed out to him by the prophet, thou art the man. So we ask this question, and I mean, again, I say this with grief because I love the David who would go up against Goliath. I love the David who could initiate a golden age in Israel. So you wonder, how could David have come to this point? And how do any of us come to the point where at one point we know something and we're so sure about our testimony, we're so sure about our behavior, and then we turn and make a decision that completely divides us from the Lord? Andrew Skinner and Kelly Ogden note, One can hardly imagine a more sobering, arresting condemnation than the one proclaimed by the Lord through Nathan. He reminded David of all the things the Lord had done for him, including the giving of many wives, and then declared, as though he were himself the Lord, And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil? in his sight. Where much is given, much is required, they continue. David was not some immature teenager lacking judgment in the heat of the moment. He was the Lord's prophet king. He was guilty of premeditated adultery and murder. The Lord pronounced an immediate grave consequence. He would raise up evil against the king out of his own family. In verse 12, the Lord also taught a profound lesson about David's attempt at keeping his wickedness a secret. His private immorality would have public consequences, which is an important principle to keep in mind in our day. They continue, David's sins would be responsible for ongoing hostility among his posterity, terrible family, and national problems were promised by the prophet. His repentant feelings, which we see in some of the Psalms he writes, were no doubt sincere, but he could not repent enough to restore the life of Uriah, nor the virtue of Uriah's wife. 
though he later hoped and prayed that his soul would not be left forever in hell, the spirit prison. The eternal destiny of doers of such sins does not look good. The tragedy and severity of the eternal consequences of David's sins are magnified by statements from the prophet Joseph Smith. On one occasion, he quoted Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, and commented, The time of redemption here had reference to the time when Christ should come a second time. Then, and not till then, would their sins be blotted out. Why? Because they were murderers, and no murderer hath eternal life. Even David must wait for those times of refreshing before he could come forth and his sins be blotted out. For Peter, speaking of him, says, David hath not yet ascended into heaven, for his sepulcher is with us to this day. His remains were then in the tomb. Now we read that many bodies of the saints arose at Christ's resurrection, probably all the saints, but it seems that David did not. Why? Because he had been a murderer. So as I hear all of this, I think, let us not be casual in any sins and anything that we would do. I remember my dad, and we've quoted this before in some former podcast. My dad used to say to us, boys, because we were all a family of boys, don't do anything that you would regret in a 100,000 years. Now, he was a geologist, so that was a very short period of time for him and his thinking. But I remember every time he would say that, I would just kind of stop and think, what? And he said, there are consequences that can last a long time. Do not do things that would cause you to be sorry in a 100,000 years. Even the best of us, the most faithful of us, can be tempted. What we feel one day, we may not feel the next. Um, We may be carried along in the spirit one day, and then we get deflected. We get tired. We get fatigued, and we sometimes can turn to other things that simply seem gratifying for the moment. So it's a very human thing that happened to David and a very unfortunate thing. So if we have hold upon our covenants and upon the Lord today, let us not let go in any way because David did. And he's grieved all of us through the centuries because we wanted so much better for him. Now, he does have another son and this son is Solomon. This is a son of David and Bathsheba, Solomon. And he, it says in 1 Kings chapter 3 that he loved the Lord and the Lord appeared to him in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give thee. So Solomon now is taking David's place as the king of a united Israel. And Solomon asks for something really important from the Lord. Well, I love his approach because he's very humble and he reminds me of other prophets in history who kind of look at themselves as small or weak. And now, O Lord, in verse 7, Solomon says, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? 
The Lord says, because Solomon did not ask for long life or riches or the life of his enemies, the Lord gave him discernment and wisdom. We're all familiar with this. And this became a great gift. And his gift became known throughout the world as the great wisdom of Solomon. Now, there is a stunning moment in 1 Kings chapter 8 because Solomon does build the temple. And as the ark is placed in the Holy of Holies in the temple that Solomon built, all the holy things are returned to the temple, including the priests bringing up the ark on its staves, which still has the stone tablets that Moses placed in it. So this symbolizes Israel's covenant with God. It looks like things are going to be really good. In fact, in in verse 10, it says, And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. That means the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. And Solomon said, I have surely built thee an house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. And I love this image. It gives us such a clear view of the temple, what Solomon says next. He stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. And so he prays that this temple might be a place of power and protection for his people. If their enemies should smite them, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain, if the land be in famine, if there is pestilence or blasting mildew or locust or caterpillar, if the people will come to the temple and be faithful, then the Lord will bless them with the miracles that they need. So he has this beautiful and clear sense of what a temple would be. And then Scott, in verse 56, I think he says the most beautiful thing. He says, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. And that's reminding us of what Joshua had said at the end of his life. And this whole dedicatory prayer, if you will, of the temple that Solomon gives really becomes kind of a pattern for the dedicatory prayers of our temples in this age. You can hear section 109 of the Doctrine and Covenants. You can hear some of the other temple dedicatory prayers in this language. And now, when we have what should be such a high point, we turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, and we see that after all this knowledge and all this testimony, Solomon forgets, and he marries what they call strange women, and by this he means women who are not of the covenant, women who are of other faith. And so he starts to build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and he builds a place for Moloch, the terrible god of the fire that they do baby and infant sacrifice on. And he starts to do these horrible things responding to other gods when he already knows. Scott, how can we see this pattern repeated again? It just breaks our heart. And I think that's part of the lesson that we have to take away is that we have to remain firm, steadfast, and immovable in following this great God of Israel. Because as we do, we are blessed. And as we do not, we are cursed and we lose the blessings that have been promised to us. 
And what happens then is after Solomon, the kingdom is split. There is a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. His own son, Rehoboam, takes the southern kingdom to be the ruler. And then there's a man named Jeroboam who becomes the king in the northern kingdom. And so we no longer have a united Israel and we will not have a united Israel again in the Old Testament. This is the end of that. So that's why people turn to David and say this was a golden age because it was united for just a little period of time and then it was divided again as soon as Solomon died. But we see here three kings in a row, Saul, David, Solomon, who know the Lord, who give beautiful testimony and turn from him. A warning for us, just surely a warning for us. That's all for today. We've delighted being with you. This is Scott and Maureen Proctor with Meridian Magazine. Next week we'll be studying 1 Kings chapters 17 through 19 in a lesson called, If the Lord Be God, Follow Him. We're grateful to Paul Cardall for the music which accompanies this podcast. And as always, we're grateful to Michaela Proctor Hutchins, our producer. Have a wonderful week and see you next time.